Yeah, uh, we're all family, right? Because um, uh, just to let you know, I've been having some horrible back spasms today. And uh, I'm hoping that standing up here in this position will be cool. I was thinking about, like, sitting on a stool, but then I was thinking, no, I'll probably squirm on a stool, and then I could, like, really hurt myself. So I think we'll be all right if I stay just like this. Luckily, I'm not an animated preacher. (laughs) I guess not. Uh, Please turn to Matthew 27. So... For the season of Lent, we've been digging into history. I know you've been... Oh, man. We've talked about those times in church history when there has been a parting of the ways. Just as East separates from West, Protestant separates from Catholic, Evangelical separates from Fundamentalist, for better or for worse... The church, because of the sinful nature of humanity, finds reconciliation exceedingly difficult at times. Even when those that wish to separate do so in a way that they find just and proper, because that does exist, there is still this presence of something within them that they cannot get past their own divisions. Incidentally, I want to thank God in the midst of our worship setting here on Good Friday, for New Hope's involvement in institutions such as the Community Crisis Center, um, which sees, like, when it sees a need, it helps a need, without prejudice. Our body has done work with the Institute of Christian and Jewish Studies, which, according to its own mission statement, seeks to build learning communities where religious difference becomes a powerful force for good. And, of course, several of us have taken classes and seminars at the Ecumenical Institute of Theology at St. Mary's Seminary, which, according to its mission statement, seeks to stimulate careful reflection, leading to knowledge of one's own tradition and respect for the traditions of other people. All of these institutions do not run from their differences. Not only, um, not only do we have different beliefs, um, when we do agree... Oftentimes, it's the applications of the agreed uh, beliefs that we agree on that we actually differ in as well. Um, I actually had this a couple of months ago when I was in a class um, on worship and worship expressions and faith traditions, and someone in the class uh, or the teacher asked us um, about communion. And they were talking about like, what goes into communion, what needs to happen for communion. And most of the folks in the class were from higher church uh, traditions, um, Catholic and uh, Episcopal and uh, higher church things. And a lot of them said things like, well, you need to have your communion blessed by a priest. And you need to have it done a certain way and certain words need to be spoken over it. And, you know, I raised my hand and I said, so what's to stop me? from going to Mars on my way home, buying a loaf of bread and a bottle of Welsh's, and going home and have communion with my family. And this was, you would have thought I punched somebody in the face. Um, Anyway, 
the theological like, conversations that we were having and the importance of the Eucharist and how that plays into our worship service, I was right there with them. But there was that like, application that for some reason there was something dividing us. There will never be any shortage of the possibility of finding ways to exploit humanity's diversity. As such, there will never be any shortage of the possibility of finding ways um, to exploit that diversity. And, and, you know, of course we're going to argue. Of course we'll debate. And there'll be times when we need to walk away from each other because in certain contexts and seasons, the conversation needs to pause. But these organizations know that the best way to navigate diversity is through love. Again and again, mankind has turned to violence and war instead of love and understandings. But there are others. There are other people in this world that see in a different way. They say that if you want to understand someone and their beliefs, you need to sacrificially serve them. You need to learn from them. You need to learn with them. Love, service, learning, and sacrifice. These things bring peace and healing to these people. Still, I am a firm believer that the best way to learn from history is to learn history. A few weeks ago, we we learned a bit about the Reformation, and um, Jason spoke uh, briefly about the Anglican Reformation and ultimately the English Civil War that came from that. Um, And I love it when you come across like little little tidbits in history. I recently learned that, um, that when the Puritans were cleansing the Church of England in the 17th century under Oliver Cromwell... One of the affected ministers was an Anglican clergyman named Lawrence Washington, who was accused by the Puritans of being a common frequenter of alehouses. I'd like to get accused of that. One historian writes that, uh, that this occasion may have been one of the key things that spurned his son John to seek his fortune in the burgeoning tobacco trade in North America. He settled in Virginia, rose in prosperity among the community, and eventually became the great-grandfather of the general of the Continental Army and the first president of the United States. World history, like the biblical narrative, consistently shows us that one generation is just as likely to make the same mistakes as the generation before it. But we also see the truth that yesterday's travails will indeed build into the character of today's challenges. That's where we've been during Lent, because sometimes before you can go forward, you need to go back. In a few weeks, our nation will mark the 150th anniversary of the events surrounding the end of the American Civil War, an excellent example of history's parting of the ways. On April 9, 1865, Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. A few weeks earlier, Lincoln had closed his second inaugural with these words, which are now etched in stone in the memorial in D.C., with malice toward none and charity for all, with firmness in the right as God sees us, uh, gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. In a move that seemed to put into motion those inspirational words of Lincoln, Grant immediately sent 
three days' rations to Lee's 25,000 starving troops. When Union soldiers began a joyous celebration, Grant held them off as long as he could and said, you know, the best sign of rejoicing after the victory will be actually to abstain from all demonstrations. Later on that week, while Lincoln attended a play with his wife, on Good Friday, he was tragically killed by an assassin's bullet. Booth jumped from the president's box and yelled, Six Semper Tyrannus, thus always the tyrants to a disillusioned crowd. Hours later, Lincoln was dead, and the nation began to mourn in confused despair. I don't want to minimize the complexities that were going, that were going on at that time, politically and socially, economically, racially. In fact, I'd like to point to it. I'd like to point here on this anniversary of sorts at the complexities of four years of brother-against-brother warfare. As Lee surrenders to Grant, and it seems for a moment that the killing is stopped, and then there's that final bullet. Think back to any American history textbook you used as a kid or in college. You can probably see it in your head, this image of Lincoln's assassination as actually literally the last page in the chapter about the Civil War. There may have been that moment that for so many, it seemed like all hope was lost. The truth is, though, all you have to do is turn the page. And when you turn the page, you find more war, more despair, more violence, more oppression, more injustice. But you also see innovation and a reawakening of the nation's industry and expansion west and the development of the modern era. The good mixes ever so well with the bad. Tonight, though, we'll look at a unique chapter in world history. It's special because it's on one hand a one-time thing. It's a time when God did something monumentally important. He did something that changed the course of history, unlike anything else in the history of the cosmos. It's something that all else, all of the good and bad in human history, all of the war and peace and prosperity and suffering and revolution and reformation and science and nature and music and art and architecture, all of these things that mankind should very well take as essential parts of their story, all of those things dim in comparison to this one event, this one thing that God did, He died. God Himself put on flesh and blood, and then tore his flesh, broke his body, and shed his blood for you and for me. He came to what was his own, his own people did not accept him, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John's words, not mine. How mysterious. How incredible is it that God would enter into the story this way? Not through the obvious triumph of a conquering king placing all who don't worship him in this kind of shame and humiliation, but rather, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself 
taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. Paul's words, not mine. And somehow through the pain and shame and humiliation, he taught us that love and service and learning and sacrifice, these things bring peace and healing. And then he calls us, as Paul says in Philippians, to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because through the shame and humiliation and sacrifice of the cross, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. These are the stakes of the cross. This is why that event where Christ defined sacrificial love in the very blood of God, this event overshadows everything else in the history of humanity. Because all of it, in one way or another, all of us must do business with the cross. It stands to reason, then, that those who bring us this story would include mysterious, apocalyptic language to describe the importance of this event. Matthew tells us in his gospel, in uh, chapter 27, from noon on, the darkness darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man's calling for Elijah. At once one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave him to drink. But the other said, wait, wait, wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Some misinterpreted what they had heard as a cry to Elijah, who was popularly regarded as a helper to those in need. But it wasn't Elijah that Jesus was crying to. It was, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. The text mentions that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Did he need to make sure that God heard him? Was God hard of hearing? Was God distracted by something else during the time of Jesus' crucifixion? No. I think that it, at least in part, part of the reason he spoke loudly is because he wanted us to hear it. He wanted to make sure we heard it. We've referenced this at Good Friday Servants at New Hope before, and we'll do it again. He was quoting Psalm 22. He spoke those words in a loud voice, I think, because he wanted to tell those below him that it may seem like the only logical thing to do is despair. Uh, Rob Bell has this awesome poem, and he puts it like this. He says, If you had witnessed this divine life extinguished on a cross, how would you not be overwhelmed with despair? Is the world ultimately a cold, hard, dead place? Does death have the last word? Is it truly, honestly, actually dark? And so whatever light we do see, whatever good we do stumble upon, are those just blips on the radar, momentary interruptions in an otherwise meaningless existence? Because if that's the case, then despair is the only reasonable response thing is, that, that's not what Psalm 22 is all about. 
The psalm begins in one place and ends with something completely different. Bell's poem is called Resurrection, and he closes with these words. He says, nothing can ever be the same again. We're living in, the, in, in a world in the midst of rescue with endless unexpected possibilities. They will take my life and I will die, Jesus says, but that will not be the end. And when you find yourself assuming it's over, when it's lost, gone, broken, it can never be put back again. When it's been destroyed and you swear that it could never be rebuilt, hold on a minute because in that moment, things will in fact have just begun. Matthew picks up in verse 50. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was God's son. Exodus records the Israelites' instructions. For the building of the tabernacle, the portable dwelling place of God that would define Israel and peop- and God, uh, as God's people and live with the reminder that he literally dwelled in their midst. In the tabernacle, in the room that separated the holy place from the most holy place, was a curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarns with the cherubim carefully worked into the design. It was hung with the finest of resources and separated the priests from the most holy place that held the Ark of the Covenant. Now Matthew tells us that that veil was torn in two. Interestingly enough, I actually just learned this in seminary a few weeks ago. The language used to describe the veil being torn apart in Matthew is very similar to language uh, used in Mark to describe Jesus' baptism. Mark says that just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, and with you I am well pleased. Later on, after the veil is torn apart and the earth shakes and the rocks split and the tombs are opened, it was a Roman centurion who remarks, Truly this man was the Son of God. The veil is torn apart like heaven opening itself up to earth. The way to God is no longer restricted to the mediation of the Jerusalem priesthood, but was open to everyone in every place. You see, there was a separation between the sacred, the set apart, and the common. With Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the veil is torn. Jesus has crossed the profane line, and now there's a new covenant. The people can go into God's presence, and God can come out. Hebrews puts it this way. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He goes on, chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Two points. Number one, question. Do you have confidence in that access? Have you have words like despair and meaninglessness too long defined who you are at your core? Have you always um, have you allowed the truth of history's violence? to corrupt your soul? Have you seen the ways humanity continues to hurt each other and long that there might be something more to the story? Friends, we're here tonight to remind each other that there is so much more to the story. We're here to remind each other that God's love for you and me drove him to the cross. An event that although it looked to be the end was actually the beginning of something brand new. His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As a citizen of that kingdom, we have confidence in the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's my sin, my addiction, my hate, my corruption, my story. Yes, even mine. Even mine. There is no condemnation if I am in Christ and He is in me. The veil is torn apart. And God's love is open to you, my friends. Not just your kids, not just your boss, not just your co-workers, not just your friends, but to you. You must trust in Him. We must trust in Him. We must have faith confessing our sins to Him and trusting that He will indeed cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may have convinced yourself that all hope is lost. You may have convinced yourself that despair is the only reasonable option. But Jesus comes to you and says, all the barriers are gone. There is nothing separating us anymore. Come, follow me. And then, Then we're commanded, we're we're not just commanded, we're invited to live a life worthy of the gospel. We're invited to shout it from the rooftops that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're defined by that reality. And that God's kingdom is already here. The anticipation of what's to come. Heaven has already begun to crash into earth. And we're invited to build for that kingdom in such a way that sees the church not simply as religious structures and brick and mortar buildings, but rather as Christ's bride. And if our priority is the kingdom, then it stands to reason we'll have a parting of the ways with the world and its corrupt priorities. That, that, that is inevitable. But if you see, if the cross is true, and Sunday is really coming, then we're also invited to not just stand against the world, but rather to be a light for the world. 
We have the freedom in Christ to announce God's kingdom and to say that violence and war and injustice is, is not the answer, and it also doesn't have the last word. We have the freedom to live a life that is defined by love and sacrifice and learning and service. The freedom that sees every drop of human history as divine narrative that it's all pointing to Jesus. It's our job to do that. Through Christ, we can have the access, the confidence, and the freedom to stand for the things that matter to God. We are the church, and we stand for the people who matter to God, all of them. Christ really does have good news for the world, and we are the medium. It is with a Eucharistic love that this task must be engaged. We're going to take communion together now. Our communion table at New Hope is an open table. And we invite all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward. If you do not worship Jesus as King, you should not feel obligated to participate. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. First, though, Please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Matthew tells us that while they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks to it, giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Paul tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Grace and peace, my friends.